today on EdgeFX. Part of my way of navigating is to really look at what's in the foreground and what's in the background. And often what's in the background is just an assumption that there is such a thing called the animal. Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of things that are animals, and even species categories are contested for various scientific reasons. I speak with acclaimed animal studies scholar Loy Gruen about her new book, Critical Terms for Animal Studies. We discuss that exciting collection and how teachers, students, scholars, and activists will find it useful, as well as her work to build the field of animal studies, why anti-racist work is imperative for both animal studies scholars and animal activists, and how she thinks animal studies might be different in the next century. I'm Laura Perry, Managing Editor, and this is the EdgeFX Podcast. Thanks, Lori, for joining me today. I'm curious what first led you to animal studies? How did your career and your experiences lead you to the field? I think there were multiple paths that led me to animal studies, but probably the most prominent of the paths was that I I studied animal ethics in one of my undergraduate philosophy classes. And I found that topic really surprising on the one hand. I had really no idea about the ways that animals were treated in, you know, our society. And I also found it really moving. So I thought about animals a lot after that. And, you know, my career went in in various directions. I studied philosophy and I also did animal activism, left graduate school to do animal activism, and then returned to graduate school to do work in feminist philosophy. Uh, But animals have been a part of the work that I've done as a philosopher really since my undergraduate days. And I know you work on carceral studies as well. So I was hoping you could talk about the relationship between your work with incarcerated individuals and your work as an animal activist and how you see those intersecting. The work that I've done in prisons has been primarily pedagogical work, at least to start with. And the very first person that I was teaching philosophy to in prison happened to be an incarcerated animal activist. So I was contacted by a lawyer for uh, the first woman who was imprisoned under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. She was a member of Shack 7, Shack being the Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty Campaign. And that was a campaign that engaged in economic protests against Huntington Labs. And the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act is designed to protect corporations from profit law due to protests from animal activists. And so she was in prison. She had already had a bachelor's degree from NYU and was interested in getting a master's degree from Antioch. So she was doing it as a kind of correspondence. And they were looking for somebody who could teach her political philosophy course for her master's degree. And I I agreed. And she was in Danbury when it was a women's prison in Connecticut. Danbury is a federal prison, not a state prison. And it went from being a woman's prison, you might know it from Orange is the New Black, to being a men's prison. And now it's actually a men and women's prison because there's two campuses there. But it was still a woman's prison. And the problem with teaching in an ad hoc way in, in prisons around the United States is that there are all sorts of limitations that make a sort of sustained teaching environment very, very difficult. And as a result of that particular course, I became interested in organizing a more sustained way of 
of teaching. And it turned out that some of the students at Wesleyan were doing tutoring and were really interested in starting a, a more formal prison education program. And so I was able to help get the Center for Prison Education at Wesleyan started. And so I've been teaching political philosophy and other philosophy courses in prison since we started the program in 2009. And as a result of that experience, I've been thinking a lot more about topics and questions of captivity. And so in 2014, I edited a volume called The Ethics of Captivity. And it was really the first book, as far as I know, that brought together a discussion of captivity for both humans and non-humans. And so I included a few chapters in the book by people who are incarcerated or were incarcerated. And also I discuss it in the chapter that I wrote in the book on uh, dignity and the ethics of sight. And that's something that I've always admired about your work is that you always keep the connection between animal studies and social justice or questions of social justice really at the core of the kind of research that you're doing. So social justice is something that has moved me from the beginning. The, the very first course that I took um, in college that introduced me to the animal question was a course that dealt with social justice issues and ethical issues. It's partly why I was interested in studying philosophy, which for some people might sound really funny because philosophy actually doesn't usually have that much to do with social justice. But for me, it does. And for me, it's been really central to both my activism and my scholarship that we look at these large questions of what I'm now calling carceral logics, but others have at times called the logic of domination or taxonomies of power, to use Claire Jean Kim's term, that these are really very importantly interrelated ways of thinking. And so it's been central to my work. And on a related note, on another episode of this podcast, uh, Dr. Boissarone described you as part of a growing group of scholars who are engaged in anti-racist animal studies. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about how anti-racist work is important to animal studies as a field or should be important and also how it's central to your work in particular. So anti-racist work is absolutely imperative, I think, for animal studies scholars and especially animal activists, because one of the things that's really important is that there has been a series of campaigns by activists that try to garner, you know, attention. They're somewhat sensational. They're really offensive and deeply uninformed, in my view. And unfortunately, those campaigns that sort of engage in a kind of simple comparison between the plight of Black people and the plight of animals is just misses the complexity of these issues that are really important to have at the fore. But what ends up happening is we, we get caught up in this kind of zero-sum mentality, and we end up having Black activists and Black scholars pitted against animal activists or animal studies scholars. And this is, this is a, I think, a, a real tragedy because what it will do as it continues is simply reinscribe white human patriarchal norms. And so we all lose out in that struggle amongst ourselves. And so increasingly, 
I've been teaching and working with activists that I know, and there are a lot of other activists who are doing this work, to make sure that these kinds of facile, offensive comparisons or parallels aren't drawn. So that's at the level of the field. I think animal studies itself has been, there's, there's a part of animal studies that has become really quite sophisticated in thinking about anti-Black racism and the underlying ideology that constructs the very concept of the human as a white human. And therefore, the non-human and Blackness are pitted against the concept of the human. So interrogating the concept itself has been, I think, a really centrally important new avenue for thinking about both animal studies and what we might call the critical philosophy of race or um, work on anti-Black racism. And that's something that I'm so on board with and my own project does. So I'm really glad to hear that you see it as a central part of your work moving forward and, and also the animal studies field more broadly, that this is something that has been not always handled that well in the animal studies field. And so making it a real focus of the people who are directly working in animal studies as we move forward seems really important. For me, part of what's so important for thinking about these questions is to really get at the heart of what I'm calling these underlying logics, these ways of thinking about exclusions and occlusions and othering, how these relationships of power have perpetuated various kinds of divisions, both conceptually and practically. And I think that that part of the problem of anti-Blackness and the problem of thinking of animals as fundamentally lesser and the problem of thinking of particularly people who are incarcerated, disproportional number, number of whom are Black, as animals. I mean, these are really, really important structures of abjection and of othering that are fundamental to address if we're going to think about, if it's even possible, but how to reimagine a world in which we can fully value Black lives, fully value the worlds that animals occupy, for example. I'm not saying that animal lives and Black lives are matter the same, not saying that, but the idea is that there's a structure and a way of thinking that really needs to be challenged. And that challenge can provide at least possibilities for thinking otherwise. And once we're able to think otherwise, we might be able to do otherwise. I think there's some question about sort of that, but ultimately trying to untangle the ways in which these, what I think of as logical structures, hold up relations of power that are fundamentally damaging and violent to a whole host of, of human people and non-human beings is, is really central. And many of these questions and logics of domination cross disciplines. So if you're thinking about the humanities and the sciences, you could think of the legacies of reproductive injustice. I was wondering how you see your work navigating that balance between the humanities and the sciences, between cultural studies and a discipline like zoology or something like anthropology. That's a really great question. One of the things that I think increasingly has to be understood 
when we say that the notion of the human is a constructed notion, what that does is force us to rethink certain kinds of assumptions that are made in not just the humanities. I mean, look, humanities, right? Not just the humanities, but in sciences and zoology and psychology, and even in cultural studies to some extent. The, the idea is that we're acting as though the human is a natural kind term. And what I think instead we should be thinking about is how do we construct these various conceptual binaries that really organize much of the way that we think about our scholarship in any field we're in. That sounds kind of philosophical, of course, but you know, one of the things, for example, that I do and I have done regularly, and I just did this past semester in prison, in fact, this time, I teach with a biologist and we teach on reproduction, reproductive biology. And it's amazing how binary reproductive biology actually ends up being. Binary in terms of gender, of course, binary in terms of sex, of course, but also there's this whole idea that there's like humans, we can figure out this is what happens in humans and this is how it works in animals. And it's a really a complicated terrain. We taught this course reproduction in the 21st century in a women's prison this semester. And as on purpose, I suggested to my colleague who I teach with, Let's try to problematize these binaries. Let's try to rethink what it is that we're teaching. It's so hard to do, but we tried. And I think that's part of what really offers up some new space for thinking. And that new space for thinking, I hope, will help us to move out of simply accepting a set of assumptions, maybe not even realizing that those assumptions are in the background and moving forward from there. Um, so part of navigating this balance in a way is, is to really think much more sort of complexly or in a nuanced way about how these various disciplines operate and what their presuppositions might be. Having said that, I think you know, those presuppositions aren't unique to fields that are philosophy or biology or ethics and cultural studies, but actually even interdisciplinary fields, I think, have a certain set of accepted assumptions that themselves need to be challenged. Now, interdisciplinary scholarship, which is something that I do more and more, is really important because it provides a certain set of skills for navigating different discourses from different fields. So that's a first step for trying to recognize what sort of basic assumptions are motivating a whole field of inquiry. But I think part of my way of navigating these different areas is to really look at what's in the foreground and what's in the background. And often what's in the background is just an assumption that sort of there is such a thing that's unproblematically male and such a thing that's unproblematically female. False. That there is such a thing called the animal. Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of things that are animals. And even species categories are contested for various scientific reasons. So these are the kinds of issues that I think that animal studies is really potentially in a good position to help us see past and help work through. And how has you, the way you teach about animals and animal studies changed over the years? And I'm wondering in particular how your students have shaped your approaches. Part of what I have been really delighted by is how 
how much more engaged students have become over the years in thinking about animals as part of a, a topic to study in a way that's not about, you know, sort of just studying their behavior or studying their cognition. So actually to put them into a, a discussion about social justice, for example, it used to be a very odd thing to have done. But now I have students that are, I teach a course called Humans, Animals, and Nature, and I teach it fairly regularly. And it's sort of an introduction to animal studies in a way. It changes every year. And this year there were more than twice as many students on the wait list as were on who I was able to allow into the class. And that's been happening consistently. There's more and more interest in the topic, um, which I think is always a really good sign that, you know, a field like animal studies has finally reached its stride. It's not still struggling to make it in the world. That's been really happy. I've made a lot of changes over the years. And obviously in the last decade, teaching um, incarcerated individuals has also changed my pedagogy um, across the board. But in the case of animal studies, one of the things that I think has been so particularly interested to think about is the ways in which looking in an uncritical way to science to try to help us answer questions about our relationships with animals is not necessarily going to be a straightforward process. For many, many years, particularly in animal ethics, and I, it still continues in, in other areas, there's this idea that somehow once science determines that fish feel pain, we will be able to figure out that we should include fish in our thinking. I've been able to sort of incorporate work that helps students to, again, look at the underlying assumptions of these scientific practices to try to determine whether or not it's really necessary or helpful to look outside of animal studies or outside of ethics to try to figure out why the lives of, let's say, fish might matter. And so this has been a real, I think, exciting change. My students have also really helped me to see how hard it is sometimes for them to navigate their particular commitments to animals in communities and families that might not be as receptive. Students of color in particular, but also I have a couple of white students who their families are involved in either animal production or scientific research. And I think it's very hard for them to try to take a stance towards attending to animals as serious beings with whom we're in relationship when they come from those sorts of backgrounds. So that, for example, this semester, that's been one of our big topics is how to help navigate a you know, fairly straightforward, familiar assumption that animals are here for us to use. And what if we don't think that, but our families and our communities do? And that's something that has come up in my own teaching of animal studies, particularly in Wisconsin, because so many students grew up in a family where hunting was a big part Mm of it. Yeah. And hunting is such a, it's such an interesting topic. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Colorado earlier in my life and have good friends that you know, we're struggling with just these kinds of questions growing up in families where hunting was a big part of both manhood and familial bonding. And that's very true. But I I just want to share a, a story that I think is really difficult and perplexing to me. So many people who are convicted of felonies lose their right to own weapons. And I have a dear friend who's a colleague of mine who's no longer incarcerated. And he He's got this idea that he wants to try to fight that denial of his right to own a firearm. And 
his thought was then then he could go hunting. And I, <laughs> we had an interesting conversation about this. And I said, you know, I obviously want you to have all of your rights restored, but I don't actually think we should have a right to own firearms, but that's a whole nother story. But hunting is a particular kind of thing. And, you know, you're going to go out and maybe shoot a deer, but you don't know the deer that you shot. You don't know what role they played in the herd. Similar with bird shooting, which is something that happens around where I live. People go out and they shoot ducks or geese. Ducks and geese are really highly social animals. And if you end up shooting one of the ducks who is the person, the, the, sorry, the duck that knows the way to migrate, you might mess up the whole, the whole flock. Similarly with deer, if you randomly shoot a deer, rarely do people think about the relationships that the animals themselves are in with other animals. And what you just said about knowing an animal community really deeply and understanding the way that animals work reminded me of your work with chimpanzees, which is a particular animal that you've spent a long time thinking about and spent time in person with. And I was just hoping you could talk about how the chimpanzees you've worked with and you've encountered and you've lived alongside have shaped your thinking about this. Yeah, I mean, chimps, it's such an interesting and, and funny story in a way, because before I had spent a lot of time with chimpanzees, I was quite reluctant to think about them as somehow spe- a special type of uh, non- non-human animal. There was a project that was going on called the Great Ape Project, and I was asked to participate. And I thought, no, I, I think that's kind of privileging great apes over other animals. And I'm not, as a social justice activist, I'm always sensitive to thinking about the ways that some are privileged over others. And I thought, nah, I don't think that's a good idea. And then suddenly um, I found myself purposely, not accidentally, but purposely in community with a group of chimpanzees that I'm actually still in community with some 16 years later, 17 years almost, in the sense that they're part of my imagination. I think about them a lot more than they think about me, I suspect, but it's nice that they remember me when I see them. I recently went for another visit with with them. I think chimpanzees are really, I mean, they actually are quite unique, really wonderful. In my own case, I was really interested in thinking through all sorts of social and political and ethical questions about what we're doing with chimpanzees in the United States. Obviously, they don't belong here, how they got here. I was able to track um, that initial period of importation, capturing chimps in Africa, bringing them over on boats to the United States, breeding them here, having generations of them in captivity, what that means for them, what that means for us, what the relationships might might look like. There were very, very dark periods in that history that were quite difficult to make sense of. A lot of deprivation work was done early on. I've done a little bit of a kind of archival history. I have the website called The First 100 Chimps that documents those first 100 chimps, who they were insofar as I could uncover it, how they were related to one another, what their relationships were like, why they were here, where they came from. And then I've been recently doing work because chimpanzee research is no longer something that the government is sponsoring. So there are a number of chimpanzees in the country that are now being held in laboratories, but not being used in research. And those chimpanzees are slowly but surely making their way to sanctuary. So I have another website where I have 
track chimps from the labs to the sanctuaries called the Last 1000. There's two main sanctuaries, the National Chimpanzee Sanctuary System, which is Chimp Haven, is a sanctuary that I'm very involved with, and they're regularly taking in more and more chimps and expanding. There's also a chimpanzee, a new chimpanzee sanctuary called Project Chimps that is taking not government-owned chimps, but private chimps from New Iberia Research Labs in Louisiana. So that's an exciting project as well. There's a really important way in which moving chimps from labs to sanctuary, even though both are captivity, and nobody's denying that both are captivity, is important. Part of the reason it's important is that in laboratories, chimpanzees, even if they're treated well in terms of their basic needs, they have access to food and water, they have access to other chimpanzees, they have access to the outdoors. Even though they have that, those basic needs met, in sanctuary, there's a whole different attitude that the humans have towards the animals that are captive there. And I think it's really quite important in research labs, even with great caretakers, so I'm not suggesting that people are not taking good care of the chimpanzees, there's still a general attitude of use. And I think it's really important for the chimps to be moved to sanctuaries. And fortunately, that's happening, although it takes a while to do it. It's a difficult process. And this is also something that the disappearing habitats and right. uh, the kind of increasing urbanization of so many of the places where chimpanzees might have been able to make a home for themselves is probably putting even more pressure on uh, the sanctuaries. I'm thinking of um, the new book, Decolonizing Extinction. I don't mm-hmm. know. If, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, and that's about orangutans. Uh, right. And Juno Perenius really digs into the complicated place of the sanctuary where there's this supposed goal in many of the publicity materials of kind of moving towards a rewilding or releasing. But increasingly with the realities of habitat loss, that that the the lifelong sanctuary is becoming more and more of the future. Right. I mean, I think that's particularly true in Indonesia and with the orangutan sanctuaries. It's, it's really, it's really quite challenging. Um, Sadly, the, the damage in Indonesia's palm oil plantations where deforestation happened and palm oil plantations were put in and it's just decimated the orangutan habitat. And unfortunately, this is also happening in equatorial Africa where chimpanzee habitat is. So it's exactly the same thing happening in Africa. And there are many, many sanctuaries in Africa for for chimpanzees. And I think increasingly one of the things, and I think Juno says this as well, what's happening is that the idea of sanctuary just is that you're going to just expand a kind of protected territory. And that protected territory is going to be where the animals live. So it's still, to some extent, a managed territory. It's not the wild, the very concept. And again, there's this funny funny binary that we need to start to really challenge. And that's between the wild and and sort of the domestic or the wild and the non-wild. And I think that division is, is breaking down in a very serious way. There really are no more places uh, where humans haven't interfered fairly drastically in our environment. Let's talk about your latest book, Critical Terms for Animal Studies, which is a collection of chapters each one addressing a critical term to the field. Uh, and from some of the most exciting people working in animal studies today, like Tom Van Doren, Colin Diane, Claire Jean Kim, Eduardo Cohn, and too many others to name, 
So how did you pair contributors and terms? Was there an overall goal that you had in bringing together these terms like life, extinction, kinship, personhood, biopolitics? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's a super exciting project. I'm, I'm really, really, really pleased with the book. Basically, Critical Terms for Animal Studies is part of a series at the University of Chicago called Critical Terms for. Critical Terms for Literary Studies was their first and really very successful book. Um, there's an exciting book called Critical, Critical Terms for Religious Studies and Critical Terms for Study of Gender and a few others. And they the University of Chicago approached me to put together a book on critical terms for animal studies. And, and one of the things that's really unique about this series is that they want prominent, well-known people to write on the terms that they're asked to write on. So they asked me to come up with a list of terms and a list of people to put with the terms, and then they would sort of vet it and decide whether they wanted to go forward. And I thought, well, you know, I've done a lot of editing. Maybe I'm not going to take on another editing project. I'll think about it. And then I went to sleep and then I woke up with a whole list of <laughs> people I wanted and terms I wanted. So no, it didn't, didn't come to me in some sort of fantastical dream, but it was more this thing where my, my mind just really quickly could put together who I would like to have talking about what kinds of terms and was able to, pulled together a really just stellar group of scholars writing on really exciting terms. And the terms, I asked each of them to, to not just kind of describe the term, but to really just take it in whatever direction they felt was exciting and important for animal studies. And so that's what they did. There's a few, you know, there were a few original terms that didn't end up showing up in the, in the volume. And there were some terms that I thought about including, but they really were dealt with in other chapters. So, I mean, one of the things I feel like is quite exciting is that although there are some connecting themes throughout, there's not re repetition. And there's scholars from a variety of disciplines. Of course, as a you know, as somebody who does work in philosophy, there's a number of philosophers, uh, there's historians, there's cultural theorists, there's literary theorists, there's political scientists, there's anthropologists couple scientists and a lawyer or two. <laughs> so, yeah. One thing that excites me about this volume is that it's not organized by animal. You could imagine a similar volume that is about, you know, chimps and cats and horses. But this is organized instead by terms like ethics, behavior, activism. Was that deliberate on your part? Yes, it was actually quite deliberate. I think there's a lot to be said for thinking very particularly about individual animals and individual animals as members of groups of animals. So I'm not suggesting that that's not a bad way to go. But in terms of thinking about critical terms, it doesn't make sense to think about critical terms as being animals, right? So the terms are part of what's important. Now, interestingly, actual animals appear in many of the chapters. So there are geese, there are chimps, there are donkeys, dogs, there are fish. So there are a number of animals that are obviously within the volume, but it's not organized in that way. It's organized alphabetically, as it turns out. So part of it is, is simply to help facilitate a conversation about the terms that matter in thinking about animal studies. 
And as you mentioned, it's in conversation with a wide range of disciplines across the humanities and the natural and social sciences. So how do you imagine the volume as a whole or the chapters in particular fitting into courses? That's a great, great question. I recently taught the book in my Humans, Animals, and Nature course. Now, my Humans, Animals, and Nature course is an undergraduate course at Wesleyan. And I used various chapters to sort of set up certain kinds of of tensions or issues or problematics, as it were. I think that it would largely depend on the student body that you're teaching. My sense is that there are parts of the chapters or some of the chapters and then parts of some of the chapters can be kind of difficult and you'll have to work through them with the students. The other thought I had, I didn't do this, but the other thought I had was that it would be really interesting to put students together in groups and then have them work through it together and then present the chapter to the rest of the class. I think there's enough depth in each of the chapters where some kind of project like that can be really useful in the class. And I I totally agree. As I was uh, reading through it, I was thinking, oh, this is going to work perfectly for <laughs> some, some future course that I'm teaching because it's so nice to be able to have a, a short chapter that opens up so many avenues for future research because the the chapters are compact, but they're not simplistic. They invite more questions. Right. I think that the chapters are meant to evoke some of the excitement around the term within animal studies, but they're not meant to just provide an overview on the one hand or get too far in depth as we might do in our own work. I also asked all of the authors to include suggestions for further readings, and each chapter has references. So if there is a a chapter, say, like Empathy, I just happened to turn to, which is my chapter, it allows students or people who might be teaching to maybe take that particular chapter and move it into different sort of directions based on the resources that are available right there. Or if you were to take a chapter like Kinship, written by anthropologists Augustin Fuentes and his colleague Natalie Porter, you have further readings that will allow you to sort of get into a set of new topics if that was the way you wanted to go. And again, Colin Diane's chapter on personhood also has just so much that you can do with that chapter to go in a variety of directions. And some of the hints towards that are there. Again, there's a chapter on post-colonialism that I think is really rich and exciting chapter. There's a chapter on pain. There's a chapter on sanctuary. There's a chapter on species. So just lots of different possibilities for for teaching. I'm also thinking of it as a as a volume that's a resource for scholars working in animal studies. So I'm hoping that that is something that many scholars will find helpful. You mentioned your own chapter on empathy. So I wanted to turn to that now. And it comes out of a long history that you have of thinking about empathy, particularly in your 2014 book, Entangled Empathy. And in your chapter here in Critical Terms for Animal Studies, it really becomes clear how powerful the concept of empathy can be in raising questions about emotions, consciousness, and particularly relationality, because it's fundamentally a relational concept. And you do acknowledge some of the the difficulties that this 
concept has in fitting in with other ideas that we have about animals. So I was hoping you could talk about how empathy works in relation to ethics and justice. Yeah, it's a great question. Empathy is a topic that I've been working on for a number of years. And as you mentioned, I put together a book in 2014 called Entangled Empathy. And the interesting thing for me, the book that I wrote, I had imagined would be useful to activists because what I was finding is that often when I was giving talks around that both students and scholars and activists attended, the activists would come up after the talks really charged and excited by this idea of empathy because it doesn't play a very large role, surprisingly, or hadn't played a very large role in a lot of discussions around animal ethics and animal justice. And so I thought, right, okay, I'm going to put together a book that I was hoping would be accessible to activists. And as it came about, it ended up being more interest of more interest to scholars. And in the context of it being more of more interest to scholars, I ended up thinking in a much more I guess, I mean, I don't want to make this like activism versus scholarship because I do think of myself as blending these two things together. But in a, I, in a different, I, I started to move in a different direction in thinking about empathy. And part of what that led to is a series of, of discussions with folks, a couple of papers and responses in which I delved a little bit deeper into what I took to be some of the challenges with empathy. In the book itself, I mean, Entangled Empathy, I have a whole whole chapter on both epistemic and ethical difficulties associated with the, the, the more popular concept of empathy. My view of, of entangled empathy, as you just pointed out, is fundamentally a relational notion, but it's also a notion that discusses a process of trying to understand the perspective of another, knowing full well that that's not a complete, total, full process. Um, you can only get glimpses of another, but that ultimately you're, you're engaged in a kind of ongoing back and forth that engages both your affective or emotional responsiveness, as well as your intellect, trying to figure out what where they're situated. And then that process of understanding, that process of perspective taking is one that you develop. It's not, it's not something you have by looking. It's something that you really have to work at. And this idea of entanglement, as, as you know, is, you know, I, I'm borrowing it from philosopher Karen Barad, who borrows it from Bohr, which is really about the ways in which we're in these complex, entangled relationships that we can't really disentangle from. And so the notion of entangled empathy is that given that we're here, given that we're part of these both obvious and not so obvious relationships, we really need to recognize the calling that we have to make these relationships better. As I say in the book, nobody wants to be in a bad relationship. The important thing is to just see the variety of relationships that we're in and the process of entangled empathy focuses our attention on these relationships and then works to help us make these relationships better insofar as that's something that we're mindful of doing. And so to answer your specific question, how empathy relates to ethics and justice is that ultimately entangled empathy, recognizing our relationships, which are both ethical and unethical, just and unjust, 
recognizing that we're in these relationships and working to try to make these relationships better is one of what I take to be the central goal of being an ethical agent in an entangled world. That's part of what I take entangled empathy to be saying. And ultimately, concerns about justice are concerns that are going to help us to recognize what empathy demands in particular kinds of situations, which may go beyond simply, you know, redistribution of goods, which is what justice often tells us to do, because sometimes that's not actually going to be the thing that's going to enhance a variety of relationships. So that's how I think of entangled empathy. There's a lot of difficulty. One of the things too that that happens in thinking about empathy right now, and one of the things I'm working on for the Racial Imagination Project on whiteness is the idea on the one hand that comes out of Sadia Hartman's oh, beautiful and brilliant work that often in the context of thinking about empathy the person who's being empathized with, let's say, for example, in her work, Scenes of Subjection, the black slave gets obliterated yet again for the white person to inhabit that space of abjection or suffering. And so that's what Frank Wilderson calls the ruse of empathy. On the other hand, you have all these white guys who are all against empathy, talking about <laughs> empathy is this problem, it's feelings, it's feminine. It takes us away from real concerns for justice. And I'm trying to navigate this really interesting and problematic and difficult space between the two, because on the one hand, yes, this obliteration and projection and annihilation and appropriation that happens with some forms of empathy is a real problem. And the here and now bias, the bias in favor of those that you recognize and know, that kind of bias that causes some of these others to reject empathy also needs to be addressed. But at the same time, I think getting rid of empathy, the, the concept of empathy would be to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. And so I'm trying to get my hands all splashed around in the bathwater. So you also contribute an introduction to the volume, as well as your chapter on empathy. And there you sketch out some of the different branches of animal studies and how these came to develop and find homes in academic institutions. And as part of that, you talk about some of the frictions between animal studies and institutionalization as a major or a center on campus. And you bring up how women's studies programs have changed over the decades and as you've been working in them. So in particular in name, becoming gender studies programs or gender and sexuality studies programs or feminist and sexuality studies programs. So this got me thinking in a sort of speculative mode. In a hundred years, what do you think animal studies programs might be called? How might they yeah. be differently? <laughs> That's so interesting. It's also so optimistic. I, I'm sad to say a <laughs> hundred years of I don't know what the what the planet itself will look like in a hundred years. Um, hopefully, there'll be some people studying things in a hundred years. But let's hold that aside and go go with the imaginative here. So, I, I think part of what was is really important to think about field formation, which is partly what I was doing in the introduction to critical terms for animal studies. But it's a really interesting set of questions. I mean, twenty years ago animal studies, there wasn't really a, such a thing, right? So I think over the last couple of decades, 
there were there was animal ethics for sure. There were people who were thinking about other animals, but there wasn't really animal studies. And so, over the last many years, I've been involved in you know trying to build the field. And part of what that field building involves is looking to other fields that aren't haven't been there since as long as let's say literature or philosophy has. So these interdisciplinary programs that were now very much a part of our institutional lives at universities, environmental studies, women's studies or gender studies, African-American studies, to some extent queer studies, although that's also somewhat newer. Looking to what contestations occurred, what the debates were. And I've been involved in women's studies since its formation in many places and also involved in environmental studies as as it got formed in a number of institutions. So I'm so privy to some of the debates that were occurring. And, and one of those debates was about whether or not it should be the kind of thing that is its own site, its own program, sort of separate from other programs, or whether it should be integrated into all parts of the university. And, you know, I think there are really strong reasons for thinking that both ways of doing it would be really useful. Part of the advantage of having its own site is that it allows for full interdisciplinarity to flourish, Um, not just multidisciplinarity, which is I think is still partly happening in environmental studies programs. So you have, here's the ecologists and here's the biologists and here's the social scientists and here's the, you know, humanities scholars and, Do they really talk together? Well, sometimes they do, but ultimately it's more multidisciplinary. I did this great course at Princeton last spring. I was there as a a visiting distinguished professor, and I was teaching a course there called the Environmental Nexus, and I was doing it with an environmental humanities person and an environmental economist and a really terrific environmental scientist. But really they were separate parts of the same course, so it was the student wasn't really getting education and interdisciplinarity, but was getting a multidisciplinary perspective on climate change. So that's one way of thinking about how animal studies might go forward. I actually really think that what's exciting and rich about animal studies in particular is that it calls out the interdisciplinary instincts that, say, a literary scholar might have or an anthropologist might have, because what we're doing is really trying to figure out how to address this being who isn't in the academy, who can't in multiple ways speak back to us, really trying to think hard about how that animal might be taken seriously within our scholarship. And I think that pushes at all of our disciplinary boundaries, as it were. So that's one of the things that I think is really interesting to think about what animal studies might bring that's slightly different than some of the other places. As we say, I mean, with women's studies, there were women in the room, obviously, who wanted issues that affect women to be addressed. And increasingly, we moved from women's studies to feminist gender and sexuality studies here at my university, but also gender studies or sexuality studies as a way of not making it a binary notion of women versus everybody else. So I think that 
there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the process of bringing into formation these new fields that are in some respect interdisciplinary. I would really like it also though if animal studies was able to be fully incorporated in universities. And I actually think that's where we are now. I mean, there's an animal studies class here, there's an animal studies class there. What we need to do is get people knowing who's doing what in different departments and different places. And hopefully critical terms for animal studies will also help with that project. I love that as you started to answer, one of your dogs chimed in. So we'll have to keep that on the podcast. It'll be our first animal guest. On on I hope so. I hope that was Zinni. She's she's a she's a remarkable creature who likes to protect the house. So she saw somebody drive by. I knew she would do that. I haven't done any podcasts in which Zinni hasn't participated. So, so what's happening for you now? Where is your work headed? At the moment, I'm really interested and been thinking about working on this topic of carceral logics and carceral perspectives and looking at the ways in which these logics are mutually implicated in a variety of ways in both the case of non-humans and humans. And so let me just give you a couple examples. Um, One of the things that I'm really interested in thinking through is this notion of dignity and disposability. And this idea that in zoos, for example, particularly in European zoos, one of the things that they do in these zoos is that they will allow animals to have, to reproduce, and then they kill the animals. And part of that process is public. And it reinforces this notion that animals are disposable. And similarly, although we're I mean, we are also executing people. A colleague of mine has just mentioned how one of the people she had worked with in a death row reading group was recently executed. But we're not, part of what I think is going on in prisons is there's an attitude of disposability. So I'm interested in thinking through the carceral logics that undergird that perpetuation, that there are some lives that are simply disposable. I'm also really interested in thinking through these questions of what gets sometimes called carceral feminism, but in the animal movement, it's it's a different kind of phenomena, a relate a different but related phenomena. So there's been a lot of interest, for example, amongst particular groups in the animal movement for prosecuting those people who work in institutions of use of animals and are cruel, you know, and extremely violent. And what does it mean to sort of imagine that somehow targeting this one individual who's being violent in this mass system of violence, should that this person should be targeted and prosecuted? I think this is a problem with bedrock carcerality of our society. And so this is a topic that I think is ripe to explore. It's not unrelated to the question of captivity, which I'm also really interested in thinking through in different ways. So my new projects are really, I'm going to try to put together my thinking about carceral logics and the ways in which both prisons and other animal institutions are reinforcing and built on that logic. That's one of the things. The other project that I'm working on, uh, you mentioned my relationship to chimpanzees. I've been working on a book project for a really long time about the chimps. And I think it's actually going to not be a scholarly book. I think I want to write a book 
and I've been working on this in different ways, but I'm, I'm interested in writing a book about how the world looks differently when you try to look through the eyes of a chimpanzee. And there's a very special group of chimpanzees that I've been working with for the last 18 years and really interested in telling their stories. So I'm going to try to work on that book over the next couple of years and really get that project finished. <laughs> it's been a long time in the making. That all sounds fantastic. I'm so excited to read it all in whatever form it appears. Thanks. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Well, it's been my pleasure. That was Lori Gruen, the William Griffin Professor of Philosophy at Wesleyan University, where she coordinates Wesleyan Animal Studies. She is also Professor of Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies and Science and Society. She's the author and editor of 11 books, including Critical Terms for Animal Studies, Animalities, Gender, Animals, and Madness, Entangled Empathy, and The Ethics of Captivity. She's documented the history of the first 100 chimpanzees in research in the U.S., and has an evolving website, The Last 1000, that documents the journey to sanctuary of the remaining chimpanzees in research labs. Find out more about her work at her website, lorigruen.com. That's L-O-R-I-G-R-U-E-N.com. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I'm Laura Perry, currently the managing editor of EdgeFX. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeffects.net.